336 feet. We go down to the Dead Sea, figuratively speaking, at minus 1,412 feet, which you may not know is the, the lowest point on earth. The Dead Sea in Israel is the lowest point on earth. Now, the low points that I selected for the study here this morning, and they're not in chronological order, but the slaughter of the priests at Nob, given in 1 Samuel 21 and then 22 and uh, onwards with the, with the after effects of that, in which 85 priests of the Lord died. The census of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 24, 70,000 people died in the judgment for this sin. And I think I told you last week, the Bible doesn't even tell us why it was a sin. We're left to figure that out. And then the one that everybody is familiar with, the sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. So we begin with the slaughter of the priests at Nob, or Nob, in 1 Samuel 21. So look with me, beginning in verse 1. Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David, and he said to him, Why are you alone? And no one is with you. So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business. And said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread on hand. But there is holy bread, sanctified bread. And if the young men have at least kept themselves from women, then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly women have been kept for, from us for about three days since I came out. Otherwise they would not be able to partake of anything holy. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel today. So the priest gave him holy bread. For there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants was Saul of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. And we don't know why exactly he was there, maybe on official business, but he had to stay there uh, probably in order to to be sanctified himself before he left and did anything. And his name was Doeg and Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen, shepherds who belonged to Saul. Now David at this time was fleeing from Saul. Saul was intensely jealous of David, and he was very fearful of David. So David was a fugitive. He was a man on the run. We don't know exactly how many years. It's hard to figure that out, but probably close to 10 years, maybe less. But life was tough in those days for David. And because of the trials and tribulations that he went through, he has left us with a depository called the Psalms, which depicted his state of mind during that period of time, many of them. 
and God's comfort to him. And we have that comfort now in the Psalms. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. And that's one of the purposes of trials. We learn to trust God. We grow in those trials and tribulations so we can help other people learn to trust God and grow in their trials and tribulations. Now, Nob was a town of Benjamin. Saul was a Benjamite. It was just north of Jerusalem. It was also a town of priests. After the Shiloh was destroyed, the tabernacle was moved to Nob, and Ahimelech, who was a descendant of Eli, was officiating there, probably as, as high priest. And when David came to him, he was, he was fearful of David because David was alone and he probably looked like a man on the run, hurried, maybe scared himself. So David lied to Ahimelech. And he said he was on the king's business. Now, the king would have been who? Saul. And that that had to be, his mission had to be kept secret. So this was a lack of honesty on the part of David. Now, maybe his intention was good to protect Ahimelech from knowingly helping a man on the run from the king. But it didn't work out that way. Ahimelech dies anyway. So lying and deception arose out of David's heart and fearful heart. And it would, it would surface again later on in his sin with Bathsheba. So I think we can learn from this that anything can become a besetting sin, which makes it easier and easier to commit. And this, I think, was a besetting sin for David. After this, he feigned madness before Achish, Achish the king of Gath. And the, the purpose there was to protect himself from being killed by, by his main enemies, the Philistines and Saul. And he was driven by fear again when he deceived Achish concerning where he had raided, been conducting raids in 1 Samuel 27. And then, of course, the sin and cover up with Bathsheba. He said in Psalm 119, verse 28, strengthen me according to your word. Remove from me the way of what? Lying. David knew that this was a besetting sin, which became easier and easier to commit. So that was a sin of a lack of honesty. But it was fear that drove David to lie. And that was a lack of trust in God. So he goes to Ahimelech and he wants food and he wants a sword or a spear. Now the bread was displayed on the table of showbread in the tabernacle, 12 loaves. And ordinarily it was to be eaten only by the priest and then it was to be replaced with fresh hot bread every Sabbath. And that bread was consecrated for sacred use. But in Matthew chapter 12, of course, there's an incident in the life of Jesus. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. 
So eating the showbread was technically forbidden for ordinary people. But his disciples were hungry, and he began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But remember, in that story, Jesus goes on a little bit further. And who is the Lord of the Sabbath? He is. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus makes the point that caring for human beings takes precedence over keeping the letter of the law. And Hosea 6, verse 6 says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And that's what Jesus appealed to. There is a time when there is a, a greater need than, than the technical allegiance to a particular law. And that time was when David went. So the, the Himalek, the high priest, recognized that. Now, I think the fact that there was nothing to offer David except kind of old showbread, I think it reveals the poverty of the priesthood at that time and the neglect of the priesthood by the people and the provisions for them. David wanted a sword or a spear, and Ahimelech told him that Goliath's sword was available. And David was really happy to have it. He said, there's nothing like it. Give it to me. I want to remind you of a scripture from 1 Samuel 7 when he faced the giant. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So when David faces off with this giant, did he need a sword? He didn't need a sword. But now his attitude toward Goliath's sword has changed. Was he forgetting that Goliath's sword had done Goliath no good? But something changed. Earlier he had contrasted Goliath's weapons with the Lord's power. But now he wanted that sword for his own defense. Stussy observes, evidently David no longer eschews the trappings of worldly military might. No longer is his main defense God, as it was before. So he would later write in Psalm 56, verse 3, What time I am afraid. I will what? Trust in thee. In God I will, will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh or what man can do to me. Well, the outcome here was that David received the bread and the sword, and Ahimelech received the death sentence. And that's because there was an evil man there named Doeg. Doeg was an Edomite. He was the chief shepherd over Saul's shepherds. You know, we can call him Doeg the wild dog, but that would be an insult to most dogs. He was no good. He wasn't really loyal to Saul. He was loyal to who? To Doeg, to himself. And then later on, though, 
When Saul confronts Abimelech, because he had received the report from Doeg in 1 Samuel 22, verse 16, the king Saul is, is now confronting Ahimelech, and he says to him, you will surely die, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand is also with David and because they knew when he fled and they did not tell it to me. But they had some integrity. The Bible says the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priest of the Lord. They knew that was forbidden. So the king says to Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and he struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. 85 priests. But he didn't stop there. Also Nob, the city of priests, he struck with the edge of the sword. Both men and women. What guilt do they have in this? Children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys, donkeys and sheep. He killed them all with the edge of the sword. He was a bloodthirsty man. Matthew Henry, the commentator, said, Nothing is too vile for men to do when God has given them over to the lust of their hearts. Saul's murder of the priests at Nob shows the depths to which human beings can descend when they are consumed by sin, when they are consumed by, by desire, when they are consumed by fear, by a loss of power. Only the restraining hand of God keeps people from being as bad as they could possibly be. And that is true. So he says, let us thank God for restraining evil and pray. And pray that he will continue to do so. But we know from scripture that there is a time when that restraining hand of God through the person of the Holy Spirit will be lifted. As evil men get worse and worse. And that's the day we find ourselves in and heading more and more into. So it says in verse 20, Now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and he fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. And he knew what manner of Saul, man Saul was and the wickedness of his heart. Listen, David knew something bad was going to happen and he did nothing to prevent it. What could he have done? Well, he could have taken Doeg the Edomite into custody. Now, if there was a battle and they got into a war between Doeg and, and uh, David, I'm putting my money on David, right? So it might have ended with the fatality of Doeg. But 85 priests would have lived and the whole town of, of Nob would have survived. He knew something bad was going to happen. He says it. And he did nothing to prevent it. So this is why he says in verse 
Samuel 20, 22b, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. So he took the blame for what had happened there. You know, I was thinking about this. We can lie. And I'd be lying if I told you I never told a lie. We can lie, but we cannot control the outcome of our lies. So it's always better to be honest and trust God. Now, there may be a few exceptions to that. I'm not going to get into all of that. But we need to be really careful because the Bible says God hates a lying tongue. And the second, second downer in David's life was the census that he took. 2 Samuel 24, 1, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. The parallel account in 1 Chronicles 21 says, Satan rose up against Israel, Belial, and incited David to take a census of Israel. Satan is the common name for an adversary, an opponent. So we don't know the full picture here. But God's anger was aroused, the Bible says, against Israel. But I want you to know that this comes on the heel of David slaying more Philistine giants, including the brother of Goliath. This right after this, 1 Chronicles 28, there were born to the giant in Gath, there were giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So, you know, David was on, on, on a, back on the winning ways, but the Bible says pride goes before a what? A fall and destruction before a haughty spirit. But when the text says that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, we need, to, we need to ask ourselves, why? Why? Was God's anger arbitrary? Or was it provoked by sin? Well, it was provoked by sin for sure. Because in, in 2 Samuel 24.10, it says, David's heart smote him after he had numbered the people, after he had taken the census. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. It says God moved David to do what he was already in his heart committed to do. And he took full account of it. I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech you, Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. It says in verse 17 that David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And he says again, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But what was the sin? That's the question, right? It's been debated. What, what exactly it was? Because there were censuses taken in the Bible where there was no such consequence for it. Many, probably most, say, well, it was some type of Sin of associated with pride. David could have been trusting in the military prowess of his armed forces. So he's taken a census of them, knowing exactly how much power he has in his army, rather than the might and the power of Yahweh. But remember, it says again in verse 1 that Israel angered the Lord. So, so was this a case 
incited by David of national pride, make Israel great again? You know? Some of you will get that later. So that's one possible interpretation that it was pride. A second is that he neglected a command of Moses who told them in the law that if the multitudes of people were to be numbered, they would have to pay half a shekel to God for every head for the service of the tabernacle. If they took a census, they had to pay half a shekel of every person that they numbered in the census for the provision for the tabernacle. It says in Exodus 30, 11, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, when you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man will give a ransom. That's a price for himself to the Lord. When you, when you number them, it's interesting that there be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone among those who you are numbered shall give half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are to be numbered from 20 years older and above shall give an offering to the Lord. So these are, these are men that were eligible for, for military service. The rich men shall not give more than the poor. No one shall give more than less less than half a shekel, when you give an offering to the Lord to make an atonement for yourselves, very possibly because they were, these young men would be going into battle and they would be killing somebody and maybe the killing wasn't justified. Maybe they were caught up in the chaos of war and they had to make an atonement, make a price for that. And also to pay for the service of the tabernacle of the meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord, to make atonement for yourselves. And we did know that David commissioned men who were eligible and fit for military service. So as I said, it may be a price that was being paid as an allotment for the support of the tabernacles for any unlawful killing in the battles. I mean, there's a lot going on here that we don't know. You know, you can get lost in all the details. But what I found interesting, he says, you're to take the sentence, pay the shekel so that there would be no what? No plague among you. Well, here's the third interpretation. There's five. I'm not going through all five. Top three. I suggest, Ken Kyle Greenwood says, that the root cause of David's census plague was premature planning for the construction of Yahweh's temple. This task was divinely reserved for Solomon, but Solomon was too young to begin such a huge endeavor on his own during David's lifetime, so David made preparations to begin construction. And among those preparations, David conducted a census to assign what was known, and this is really common in the ancient Near East, corvée, C-O-R-V-E, labor, which is constricted or forced labor, unpaid labor. So he might have been using foreigners in some capacity and, and who were attached to Israel or his own men and forcing them into, into, into labor. And this was to be supervised by Adoram. And this blatant insolence, he says, aroused the wrath of Yahweh, who sent this horrific plague on Israel, which was, which was only ablated or caused to an end by the purchase of the land that David would purchase on which the temple would ultimately sit. 
And it's, he says, finally, David informed Solomon in Israel that his prior preparations had resulted in blood on his hands. Thus, the responsibility to build the temple lay exclusively with Solomon. He was a man of war. We do know that. But the judgment seems, wow, way out there, doesn't it? Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer you three things. Door number one, door number two, and door number three. Choose one of them, that I may do it unto you. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Door number one, seven years of famine will come upon the land. Or, you will flee three months before your enemies, are, which are going to be in a like more or less hot pursuit of you. That's door number two. I think I would have taken that one. Or, what was the final one? Three days of pestilence, plague in the land. Now advise. See what, I, I, see what answer I will return and give it to the one who sent me. Take your pick, David. And David said to Gad, I, I, am, I am in a great strait. This is, this is a mess. I don't know what to do. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. Let him pick. And let me not fall into the hand of man, myself. So the Lord sent a plague or pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil. In other words, he turned aside from doing that and said to the angel that destroyed the people, it's enough. It's enough. Stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord by the, was by the threshing place of Arunna, the Jebusite, where the temple would be built. I've said this many times. It seems like we don't even know the exact reason, but 70,000 people died. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. 70,000 was a very high price tag. And then we come to which sin in the life of David we're most familiar with, Bathsheba. And it says in 2 Samuel 11, it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon, and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem, underlined that David remained in Jerusalem. Then it happened in the evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. It doesn't say anything about that she was completely uncovered or anything like that. So David sent inquired about the woman, and someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, so she sent and told David, 
and said, I am with child. So the question is, was it more than adultery? Adultery typically takes what? Two people. Well, I want to say this to begin. David was in the wrong place, the palace, at the right time. Now, we usually say he's in the wrong place. At, no, he was in the wrong place at the right time. A time ripe for temptation. Had he been with his troops where he should have been as the king and as the one who would lead them into battles, this whole thing would have never taken place. He fell into a trap laid by an enemy greater than the Ammonites, the Philistines, Saul, or any other enemy that David, David faced. Satan had laid a trap for him. Now, he had not only put himself in temptation's way, David had plenty of women in his life. Why did he need one more? He did not lack female companionship. Here's a list of, of, his, of the wives that we know by name. They are others, including concubines, Michael, Abigail, Ahinoam, Maka, Haggith, Abital, Eglah, and Bathsheba. She was the last that's named. So he had plenty of female companionship. But I want to maybe suggest to you today that this was not a mutual or consensual affair. That David used his authority and power as a king, the Bible says, to take her. She had no choice. She was summoned to the king before the king. And the text does not say that Bathsheba realized she was summoned, being summoned to the palace to fulfill David's lust. More likely, she would have thought that she was being called there to be told that her husband had died in battle. Very possible she thought it was, I got to go to the king, he's going to give me the bad news that Uriah died in battle. And the verb shakav there, lay with her, can mean intercourse, but that's very infrequent. It is most often used in the Hebrew Bible in the case of rape. David conquered a bear and a lion. He killed Goliath the giant. He faced down many Philistines. But he could not conquer his own lust. Well, he's in a mess now. She's pregnant. So he has to cover up this evil deed. And he has Uriah. A trusted soldier, one of his mighty men, killed to cover his sin. That's another abuse of his authority. And you know, Uriah, he was an honorable man, right? David brings him to the palace and wants him to, you know, hey, go, go, you know, be with your wife, take some time. And he wouldn't do it. Not while my men are in battle. So he gets him drunk and thinking, well, this will do it. And that didn't do it either. He had integrity. David did not. But when Joab's report 
of Uriah's death reached David, his response was incredibly calloused. David, David said to the messenger, told jo, told, told, tell Joab, don't let this thing upset you. There is no way to anticipate whom the sword is going to, to fall upon in, in battle. Press the battle against the city and conquer it. That's he was trying to encourage him with those words. Translation, Joab, you win a few and you lose a few. That's bad, huh? The only problem is David arranged the loss. David deliberately committed murder to hire, to hide his adultery or rape, however you take it. First Samuel eleven twenty six. And the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. But that child would be born under the cover of an unlawful marriage. The marriage that shouldn't have taken place. But the only problem with everything that David did is what we read at the end of verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's enough, right? So God sends the prophet Nathan to David. It says in 2 Samuel 12, 1, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him, and he told him the story of a rich man and a poor man. And I wonder what David was thinking. I mean, the last person he would want to see was Nathan the prophet. What you here for? When he knows in his heart, probably, uh-oh. But maybe some sense of relief came to him when, when Nathan starts telling him this story about the rich man and the poor man and so forth. But I want to point this out first. Nearly one year elapsed before David was confronted with his sin by Nathan. I said it before, justice delayed is not justice denied. You know, it really strikes me. These men commit murders 40 years ago when there was no, you know, DNA technology, but the DNA was preserved. And, and they're arrested for murder 30 or 40 years later. It just happened. A man and another accomplice. 40 years earlier, they had killed a girl. Yeah, hi, how? Oh, what you here for, cops, detectives? Murder. You have a warrant for your arrest for murder. Could you imagine? This was just a year. But David maybe thought he was going to get away with the sin. I think, though, that wherever he went in the palace, the ghost of Uriah, figuratively speaking, haunted him. His conscience would not let go. And David wrote many psalms speaking about his personal sufferings and anguish because of his sin. Psalm 38, 01, O Lord, don't rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure, for your arrows pierce me deeply. 
and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. David was literally afflicted in his body. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long for my loins are full of inflammation. What's the diagnosis, doctor? And there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants. My strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it is almost gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from me like a plague, like with Job. My relatives even stand far off. That's a man tormented. That's a man afflicted in body and afflicted in spirit and afflicted in his mind. Because of his sin, there is a price to be paid. So in 2 Samuel 12, 11, we read, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he will lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly with Bathsheba, but I will do this thing before all Israel. I will bring it out before all Israel. Absalom, your son, will lie with your concubines. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Oh, that's the first step in the path of repentance. And the Lord, Nathan said to David, the Lord also put away your sin. You will not die which he should have, right? For adultery or rape or murder. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child who is born to you will surely die. And then Nathan departed from the house and the death of the child by Bathsheba was just one of the many judgments that David incurred. We can sin but we cannot control the outcome of our sins. Because David took another man's wife privately, God said, another man will take your wives publicly in the sight of all Israel. Two years later after this instance, Ammon, David's son, commits rape against his half-sister Tamar. And David does nothing about it. Why? Why? Because his conscience would not let him execute a man for the same crime he committed. He had lost his moral authority. Then Absalom, his, his son, kills Amnon because of what he did, making Absalom guilty of murder. But David could not judge him because he was also a murderer. He had turned a blind eye to justice because of his own injustice. Then he faced rebellion by his trusted counselor, Ahithophel. We say, why? I mean, it seems so loyal. Why? Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. 
And more than that, his son, Iliam, was the comrade of Uriah. You think something wasn't boiling in his heart? It was a time for revenge. So Ahithophel sided with Absalom. And here's what it says. Absalom followed Ahithophel's advice just as David had done. For every word Ahithophel spoke seemed as wise as though it had come directly from the mouth of God. Wow. How would you like to have a counselor like that? David did. How would you like to have a counselor like that turn against you? Because of what you had done. So he writes Psalm 41, 9, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, Ahithophel, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And we know that ultimately fulfilled in Judas, Psalm 55, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I can hide from him. But it was you, Ahithophel, a man my equal, my companion and my acquaintance, we took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. Nothing hurts as deep as the wounds of a friend. Nothing, nothing hurts as deep as someone who turns their allegiance to someone else and becomes disloyal to you. But here's the, here's the thing, brothers and sisters. David had betrayed Uriah, a loyal soldier. Now he was being betrayed. You see how deep this goes? And then Abner and Adonijah joined the rebellion against David. Rebellion after rebellion stalked David. Why? Because he had rebelled against the Lord. And then he had to endure shame by a man named Shimei, son of Gera who was part of Saul's clan. I heard one preacher say, you know, this man Shema, he was of the tribe of the reptiles. He was a snake. He was no good. He wrongfully blames David for the death of Saul. And he's holding on to this. But I'll get to my point. 2 Samuel 16, 5, when King David came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul who was named Shimei, the son of Gerah, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously. And he threw stones at David, all the servants of the king, and the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand, on his left. And Shimei cursed David, come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you worthless man, you worthless Belial. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught up in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. He's thinking, well, you killed the house of Saul, now you're, now you're getting this revolt by Absalom. He was bloodthirsty. David, he was a man of war. But he took the blood of Uriah. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, that's David, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over there and take his head off. Yeah, I mean, these were, these, they didn't fool around back then. You know, that's all I could say. But David, the scripture says, would not let him do it. 
No, it would be left to Solomon to get revenge. You know why David wouldn't let him do it? Because the, he believed the Lord had sent Shimei to insult him, to harass him, and to curse him. He knew his own guilt. And under Hebrew law, casting stones was the punishment for adultery, rape, and murder. Is there something in that? I don't know. But it's interesting that he's casting stones at the king. And the king would do nothing because the king could do nothing. He was a guilty man. You come to Psalm 51. Well, you come to for Samuel 12, 13. First, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Remember? You're the man. Tells him the story of the rich man and the poor man. The rich man takes the little man's lamb. And David's furious. Who was the little lamb? Bathsheba. He took her. She was the victim. Like in the parable. She was innocent. Again, further evidence that that was not a consensual affair. So he says, I've sinned against the Lord. And that leads to a plea for forgiveness. Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Against you and you only, have I sinned. What is David saying? He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against all Israel as the king. But it begins with the acknowledgement that it's first and foremost sin against God. Against you and you alone have I sinned. So you have to come right to the Lord first for forgiveness. Make that confession. Listen. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know about your own life. I don't know who knows the Lord and who doesn't. But maybe somebody's thinking, well, I'm, I've never done that. I've never committed adultery. I've never raped anybody. I've never murdered anybody. You know, I mean, all things considered, I'm, I'm stacking up pretty good against this man who's, who's the man after God's own heart. But what did Jesus say? Out of the heart proceeds all kinds of evils lying theft adultery murder you name it it's all inside it's all ready and waiting for just the right situation to flow out of us anger wrath whatever it is heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked 
Who can know it? Well, God knows it. So if there's anything we need to make right with the Lord, we need to make it right with the Lord. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you need to make that right with the Lord. And there is forgiveness with God, right? David said, blot out my transgressions. Wipe them off my slate. Wash me thoroughly. That's complete cleansing from my iniquity. Listen, the only water that can wash a person, or the only thing that can wash a person thoroughly from his sin is what? The blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing, nothing else can do it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. No rite you can do, no ritual you can do, no excuse you can lay before the Lord. No money you can offer, no amount of church services that you can intend, no good things that you can do to other people can wash away your sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank God he came and paid the price for our sins. Father, thank you this morning. May the words of this message strike the chords of our heart. Use it as you will, Lord. To bring, to bring repentance, confession, and change. In Jesus' name, amen.